Welcome to the Hope Beyond Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Rhoda Hostetler. There are literally millions of listening options out there, but today you chose this one. I hope whichever episode you're about to hear gives you something worthwhile to think about and a greater ability to love. Thank you so much for being here today. This is a continuation of the previous episode. I highly recommend going back and listening to the episode on navigating church well while recovering from severe church pain if you haven't. Today's episode is the more practical side, and so if you don't have that base of the why behind the practical side, it could feel heavy and burdensome. Today we're talking about how do you find truth? How do you build a healthy theology? And that's a slightly different question because whether we want to or not, we do build our theology in community. Someone has influenced and someone will influence what you believe. So how do you find truth is going to focus on the core of what we consider to be authoritative when it comes to uh, religious truth within the Christian community. What is what is true? What is the core of that? And then how do you build theology? I'm going to discuss a little bit more about how we select a community that is trustworthy to help us build our theology. How do you recognize Pharisees, a healthy church, or an unhealthy church? What can I tell you about finding a church? How do you overcome anger towards religion? And how do you overcome trauma responses that prevent you from participating as well in church as you would like? So first questions first, how do you find truth? Familiarity with the Word of God. There really is no shortcut here. Pray about obstacles to absorbing Scripture, whether your obstacle is time, mental capacity, or if you find Scripture triggering, which is common for survivors. So much of our ability to believe true things about God, ourselves, and others comes down to our willingness to be familiar with the scriptures. We don't always enjoy familiar things, and that's okay. Consistency is better than hype. This can teach you to make sense of the nonsensical, the consistency, the familiarity with scripture can speak into areas of doubt or turmoil. And it can teach us how to recognize other believers, which we'll talk about later on. But what should you do if you can't get past certain triggering topics? Let's say you heard that grace is second chances and your abuser heard that grace is second chances. And so he took second and third and fourth chances or authority. If that was misused in your story or forgiveness or anxiety, so many topics that could be so good and so freeing are twisted and used against us and then it becomes difficult to want to understand them well they become they can become triggering not because we are opposed to God's voice on them but because the whole topic itself is just so fraught with pain and cruelty for us i'm going to lean on rebecca davis's advice here she says to press into those trauma triggers, and I would wholeheartedly agree. Press into them, study them, 
until you get to the point where you understand it. It is not just a concept that you're okay with coming up. You want to understand that concept. You want to know that concept front and back. You want to know the depth of what scripture has to say about it. And you want to also know how it is misused or how it was misused for you and why. I'll give you an issue that used to be a trigger issue for me. Anxiety. Ugh, I just did not want to hear what anybody had to say about it. Anybody religious. I wanted to scream, but you do not understand. And if I protest, you'll call it conviction, but this isn't conviction. This is something's off and I don't know what it is. And so I would just quietly groan whenever I read a religious blog or article about anxiety. This was while I lived in Asia that I hit my don't give me your religious thoughts on anxiety phase. So it was reading and not preaching that was bothersome to me. That went on until I actually spent time in scripture. And you know what I found? King Solomon wrote about anxiety. Jesus paraphrased Solomon. Neither one of them consulted the DSMV, which is the the manual that diagnoses mental um, yeah diagnoses mental illnesses today. They Solomon and Jesus did not shoot forward two thousand years and borrow a definition of a word from a culture they were not a part of, and then pull back and stick that in the scriptures. Our definition of anxiety today has a lot to do with physiological symptoms of internal distress. So panic attacks, racing heart rates, nightmares, cold sweats, racing thoughts. I would bet that sweating blood would fit in there too. Those things are not sinful and they're not necessarily indicative of sin, although they can be. If you rob a bank and you become terrified that you're going to get caught, you might start sweating. And at that point, uh, your sweat isn't a sin, but it's probably indicative. Like you're, you're dealing with some type of anxiety, as we think of anxiety, that does indicate some level of sin. You know the word picture that Solomon gave us to define anxiety? Like how did Jesus and Solomon describe it? What did anxiety mean to them when they were warning us about it? Solomon says, waking up early and working late because you don't trust that God will provide. He's able to provide for his children even while his children sleep. Solomon reminds us of that. You know the word picture Jesus gave us? It's a similar one. And he even mentions Solomon in his. His word picture had to do with clothing and food. The lilies of the field, they don't dress themselves. So now... When anxiety comes up in a religious conversation, even if the speaker holds the more traditional view or the broad view, I don't have that trigger response. I do perk up and pay attention because it's an issue I understand and I care about, but I don't spiral because I know what I believe. It's a secondary issue. It's not my hill to die on, but the kind of anxiety that scripture portrays as sinful is actually more in line with workaholism. When the anxiety we experience is internal distress to the point that our bodies show it, whether it's simply racing thoughts or, like Jesus, sweating blood, the biblical narrative of how God responds to our physiological symptoms of internal distress is comfort. Over and over and over again, he comforts us. 
in that kind of anxiety. So when David had sadness emanating from his bones as a result of the consequences of his sin, Job, when Job suffered so greatly, Jesus, over and over, he comforts us in our distress. But our anxiety, when our anxiety is a lack of faith in his provision, that he challenges. So you build truth by being familiar with scripture and you overcome triggering Bible topics by pressing deep into them, not avoiding them, not hoping they don't come up. Pray for God to show you himself. Pray for God to show you his heart in that topic, in in the scriptures. You don't want to walk away with the right answer so much as you want to walk away with a deeper connection to God. How do we build healthy theology? This is related. You need to understand that your familiarity with scripture, your ability to recognize truth from error is pivotal in building a healthy framework of theology. But we do build our healthy theology in community and we build our unhealthy theology in community. Theology is simply the study of God. So theo references God and logi references logic or study. Start by praying for a hunger and thirst for God himself. You can find yourself deeply involved in theological debates and you're hungering and thirsting to show how smart you are or to win an argument or to check a certain theological box. No. You, if you are going to study God, you need to have a hunger and thirst for God himself. And I found that that is not a thing that I can drum up. I regularly have to ask God for a hunger and thirst after him. It is not the study of religious concepts. It is the study of God. So the ultimate check of your theology is not in how well it aligns with another's or how many boxes it checks off. The ultimate check of your theology is if it makes you more willing to sacrifice and serve in ways that build others up. Do you love more consistently? Do you love better with a greater focus on others' well-being and not your desire for credit? Do you love more authentic? But sorry. Do you love more authentically? Is there a big difference in how you love your people in private and how you love your people in public? The Pharisees loved theology, or if you wanted to be more precise, they loved lawology. They loved studying the law. They loved building boxes for other people to check off. They loved being able to check off those boxes. And their hearts were not at all in line with Christ. So you build your theology and community. And for those of you who don't have a church community, you might say, but it's just me and the Bible and whatever I find online. And with the internet, think of theology on the internet kind of the way you might think of gold in California during the gold rush. Is there gold? Yes. Do people get killed trying to find it? Also, yes. I give you that caution not to say that everything on the internet is bad. I have benefited immensely from some healthy voices online. But you want to be anchored first by your own study of scripture. And secondly, ideally, you will have that community of believers that can help you process your theology. If 
your, I'm almost getting ahead of myself here. If your community tends more heavily towards the traits of Pharisees, then there's a warning that Jesus gives us there, but I'll get to that later. I'm going to speak to survivors in the audience, and then I'm going to speak to pastors in the audience, and then atheists. Um, And the reason I'm speaking to pastors here instead of just survivors, while this is mainly focused on survivors, um, I think this is important. And in the last episode, I mentioned um, how, how sometimes pastors can go online to find out what other pastors are saying about how to handle abuse or trauma-related topics, and they can find voices of really unhealthy and unhelpful people. And that's why I'm mentioning pastors here. It, it seems to fit in this conversation. So survivors, part of healing in general is a willingness to take relational risks again. To love and to trust again is to open ourselves up to the possibility of being disappointed or hurt again. Dr. Diane Langberg, in her book, Redeeming Power, speaks to this. She says that if we are not willing to risk relationship again, we will never truly thrive. And she's right. Internet friendships can and do point us to Jesus, and I'm beyond grateful for some of my friendships that began as internet friendships. But sometimes internet friendships seem easier because they help us to avoid relational risk, but they don't deeply meet the needs we have for community. They can provide camaraderie and peer support, and those are necessary parts of recovery. But when it comes to deeply grieving or building healthy theology, for both of those things, we need real live people in the same room as us. We need to know that the people who are shaping our theology actually live out what they profess or they repent when they fail to live it out. We need to see that. We also need to be able to understand what someone's biases are, and to be able to trust others who will patiently and affectionately push against our biases. So yes, there are occasionally seasons where an individual is in between churches or like during COVID, a lot of churches went online where it is necessary and appropriate to utilize the internet. And thank God that there are healthy, good voices online. But as a general rule, when it comes to building healthy theology, your first stop is your decision to become deeply familiar with scripture. Your second stop is a crowd of real life people who live like Christ followers and not Pharisees. And your third stop is any other resource. And you should filter your third stop resources through your own study of scripture and through your crowd of um, Christ followers. So pastors in the audience, I alluded to this a bit in the last episode, but the same general rule is true for you, even when it comes to areas that are secondary issues. How do you learn how to address abuse or trauma or how to speak to race in ways that are good for your people and faithful to scripture? There are a lot of internet voices and you don't have the ability to know for sure how the authors or speakers actually live in private. You might be taking counseling lessons from a prolific abuser if you rely on the internet. One of my personal frustrations is that here in America, when you look at American Christianity and you look at the abuse issue, we have between 20 and 30% of congregants, depending where you get your statistics from, 20 to 30% of congregants have experienced violence, most of them in childhood, and they are in our pews. So think of all the Americans in churches in every city who are directly qualified to speak to this 
And yet there's an abundance of harmful counseling approaches. There's an abundance of internet teachers who haven't been through violence themselves, but they're willing to speak on it. There's an abundance of religious voices who think that the answer to an abuser and a victim is to find middle ground. There are so many voices out there whose first impulse is to tell survivors what to do. So when I think about the abundance of internet resources and the abundance of shady internet preachers when it comes to abuse, sometimes it feels like the bad guys have grabbed the microphone, pulled America's pastors away from us, and taught America's pastors how to hurt us more. So pastors, when it comes to almost any issue of pain or difficulty, not just abuse, This applies to race issues, divorce issues, disabilities, mental health issues. You already have a strong resource built in. Be excessively familiar with scripture yourself. That's your first stop. And then go to the people in your own pews before you go online. Filter out your third stops, your books, and your internet resources through the perspectives of the people in your pews. Create a church culture where people can be honest and open about how deeply they have struggled or are struggling and ask their perspectives. Find out from them what is harmful or beneficial about certain approaches or statements or just hear them hear them well. We are good for each other and it's by God's good design to put people from diverse backgrounds with diverse interests and diverse concerns together in the same space. Is there potential for conflict and disappointment? Oh, yes. But there's also way more potential for growth, healing, and general goodness. When it comes to the internet, I do use the internet. It does influence me to a point. I have a few filters that I use to filter out whom I will and will not listen to. Survivors, my personal filter for who I do and do not listen to when it comes to theology is basically how well do they actually love it. Not how often do they quote scripture, but how well. So a hallmark of a good student of scripture is the ability to use the Old Testament to interpret the new and the ability to see Jesus in all of scripture. Another hallmark of a good student of scripture is a hesitance to throw Bible verses around sloppily. If you love something, you use it carefully. That could not be more true than when it comes to scripture. So if someone asks me for a drink of water and I quote Psalm 23 to them, I don't actually love that individual, and I probably don't actually love Psalm 23. I just love feeling religious in that moment. When it comes to online voices who speak to abuse, my personal filter there is simple. Has this person listened well, and or have they suffered in order to stand up for the vulnerable? Anyone can say anything, and even in advocacy, we have the problem of harmful people who engage in unethical behaviors. They make others suffer. Trustworthy voices are voices that have listened long and well. Survivors who have fought for healing, which is often a years-long process, and those who have been personally hurt for no reason other than that they stood between an abuser and his target. Some names that I trust enough to mention right now, I'm not worried about a future fallout. Um, I trust Rebecca Davis's voice online because she has listened well. I trust Dale Ingram because he has openly owned um, how he did not respond well to his father-in-law and then how God brought him 
to a point of actually responding well to his father-in-law's crimes. And so because he's able to own where his mistakes were and what he should have done differently specifically, I, I trust his voice. He has also listened long and listened well to survivors. Jimmy Hinton is another worthy mention simply because of how, with, with what tremendous wisdom in the face of great pain and great difficulty, he led his church through the fallout when his father was exposed as a prolific abuser. So, lastly, atheists in the audience who are seeing Jesus in a new light, this same principle is true for you. There are real-life people who believe the same things that you find appealing about those of us who stand up to violence within religion. And I hope you find some real-life people who will make space for both your unbelief and your pull to believe. Real-life relationships can be the worst. That is true. They can also be the best. So if we're going to build our theology and learn how to care well for one another in community, how do we find that community in real life? I'll tell you what I know, but I am not promising utopian-esque answers here. Part of me wishes I could give you a list of rules to follow or some simple instructions and ta-da, you would find a church that would never break your heart. But scripture does not present church participation with that kind of promise. So none of what I say today comes with a promise of avoiding all future church pain because I can't promise it if scripture doesn't. False promises attached to God's name, I believe, are part of spiritual abuse. So open your Bible or your Bible app to Matthew 23 and go through it line by line. Here, Jesus is warning us about the Pharisees. He's not telling us how to avoid a bad church so we don't get hurt. That is not the point of Matthew 23. However, pulling Matthew 23 apart has been helpful for me to build a mental framework for making sense of certain situations. The first section of frustrations that Jesus has with the Pharisees, verse after verse, has to do with how they relate to others. They preach to others, but they don't practice. They tie heavy burdens onto others, they don't carry weight. They seek honor and applause from others, but they push others down. They swallow up widows' houses and then pretentiously pray which feels oddly familiar to cases where an already vulnerable person is harmed and then the church covers it up and says the cover-up was required in the name of reconciliation or forgiveness or some other religious word or phrase. We were warned about the Pharisees. I do not believe that there is anything here that says we were warned so they could not hurt us. Rather, Jesus' stated reason for giving us this warning is so that as we interact with them and live under the weight of their cruelty, we would not become like them ourselves. If you are in a church that you recognize as being pharisaical, as having a lot of parallels to the frustrations Jesus names in Matthew 23, your first concern should be representing a healthier way to them, representing truth to them. Um, inviting them to Jesus, and then making sure you don't become like them. If you are under the leadership of people who consistently live out Matthew 23 um, and don't want to repent of that, but you have the option to get out, I highly recommend getting out for your own good in more ways than one. So that's the Pharisees, and please do go line by line through Matthew 23. I don't have time to delve into all of that today. First John is where I would send you to learn how to recognize Christ followers. Christ followers believe in Jesus. That's the core. That's it. That's what gets us in. So your expectations should be pretty basic. You should expect to be around people who agree that Jesus was who he said he was. And after that, all bets are off. 
They might be healthy as a whole. They might not. Here's the thing, though. As we begin to follow Jesus, we begin to change. First John says that if believing in Jesus doesn't cause some other things to also be true, then we don't believe in Jesus. Christians love each other with a love that doesn't seek its own benefit, but seeks the others. Another thing that's true of people who believe with a faith that is more than a check that box kind of faith, but a true trusting faith is we obey even when it doesn't make sense or appeal to us. This isn't a muscled up obedience. This is an, I don't like what's being asked of me. I don't understand it fully, but I know the person who's asking. I know he's good. I know he died for me. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to do what he says, even when it doesn't make sense, even when I don't want to. Another thing First John says is that we still sin sometimes. We don't love perfectly. We don't obey perfectly, but we live in the light. So those three things, Christians tend to love, Christians tend to obey God, and Christians tend to live in the light when they fail at love and obedience. Those are general tendencies shared by believers. A tendency can be a very strong tendency, or it can be very weak, or it can be somewhere in between. Churches tend to exist like this too. Churches that are comprised of genuine believers can have a strong tendency towards love, obedience, and living open lives. Church can also be messy and sinful with a weak tendency towards love, obedience, and open lives. I need to write a book here. I've deleted so much out of this episode. For a fuller picture of what actual churches can look like, go spend some time in Revelation, reading the letters to the churches, and spend some time in 1 Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians 5, if you care about the abuse conversation within religion. I'm resisting a strong urge to elaborate on 1 Corinthians 5, because it's, it's a doozy. Read it for yourselves, and reread it, and doubt your first assumptions, and read it again with a pen and paper. That's my recommendation. So when it comes to relating to unhealthy churches that, like the Corinthian church, are actually willing to repent and to live in the light and to live according to the word of God, I do want you to build a tenacious willingness to sacrifice for other Christ followers good, even when church life is messy. But at the same time, when it comes to chronic cover-ups by one particular church, if there is no tendency not even a weak tendency towards love for the vulnerable or towards obedience or towards repentance and living in the light, then this pains me to say it, but I don't think we have reason to assume that they are believers. And both, both statements are difficult for me to make. It's difficult for me to tell, tell, to encourage you to be like Paul and write a letter that reads like 1 Corinthians 5 when I know the backlash that such a letter could receive today. And it's also difficult for me to say that some of these groups are not part of the church that Jesus loves and fights for. I don't have easy answers, and I don't like my uneasy answers, but I think that's the best I can do to articulate what scripture has to say about that. So that is the bare bones of what I know about healthy and unhealthy churches who are loved by Jesus and fought for by Jesus and called to repentance by Jesus and celebrated over when they do repent and pharisaical leaders who Jesus just tells us, watch out for them and don't let them influence your character. Don't love your neighbor the way they hate their people. That's what I know about recognizing different churches. How do you actually find a healthy church? I'm going to give you my very best answer, and my very best answer does not come with a huge promise. I highly recommend that as you are praying for God to give you a hunger for himself, that you also ask him to put you in a group of Christ followers who are local to you. Start there. God cares about you. 
He cares about his church and he is in the business of pulling us to himself. And as he pulls us all to himself, he also pulls us to one another. I do believe he will move on your behalf, but I cannot promise he will move in ways that feel good. Here's why. If God loves a church like the messed up Corinthian church, then he's going to send people to her who will walk her towards repentance. And things might not go well for those people in some situations. But also, God does have church leaders here in America who lead as if they are going to suffer and as if they are going to carry weight so that their people don't have to. And those churches are the kinds of churches that bind wounded people up and they don't shrink back from repulsive brokenness. I hope that those of you whose hearts are broken beyond what you thought you could ever take, I hope that God drops you into healthy, kind, and affectionate churches. Okay, now the final obstacles to participating well in church. The two obstacles that others have messaged me about the most have to do with anger towards church and then fight, flight, freeze, or fawn responses. So with anger, your first step is to not condemn yourself for it. You were created to experience emotion. You were created to believe true things. There are some things that if you hold as true, then by default, you will experience anger in certain circumstances. Widows' houses being robbed and then the act being covered up by pretentious prayer? If you believe that widows have dignity, the thought of them being robbed will anger you. What's not appropriate is a lack of self-control in that anger or impatience in that anger or projecting that anger onto people who are not involved. There is wisdom in sitting with our anger long enough to let it mature. Tell God you're angry. Tell him who you're angry at. He can give you his anger and he can narrow your healthy anger down to a focused anger that yes, acts and speaks and shakes things up, but does so with focus and skill, not just raw, unbridled anger. Righteous anger can hold itself on pause while it thinks through the very best moves to make for the vulnerable it wants to defend. And righteous anger, if it is truly godly anger, it is not going to lie about the elements of self-centeredness or selfish anger in it. Jesus flipped tables, yes, but he did not flip them the exact instant that he became aware of the problem. His anger moved things and created the chaos needed to upset the wicked religious leaders, but it was an anger that was mature and he was thinking and speaking deliberately. If you are feeling broad scope anger towards the church as a whole to where you would say you love Jesus, you're a believer, but right now because of the amount of pain you're in, you are just angry at church as a whole, the best advice that I can give you is to ask God to give you his view of religion as a whole and then his view of the church and be familiar with scripture. He certainly expressed anger towards the Pharisees, but I think you'll find that God's heart towards his church, towards those who believe in him, is not anger because Christ took the anger that was otherwise due people who now believe in him. He took anger for sinners who believe in him. His primary posture and tone towards his church is deep affection, even when he is strongly rebuking her. So the person who hears the most about your anger should be your creator. He can take your anger. He can refine your anger. He can give you patience and self-control in your anger. And yes, he can even do wonderful things with it on behalf of the vulnerable that would not have been accomplished without a healthy anger.
for fight, flight, freeze, or fawn responses, first things first, I'm going to recommend a trauma counselor because I cannot possibly speak well into every listener's unique situation and unique responses. Your trauma counselor can help you know when you are ready to approach church, when you need boundaries at church, when you need to learn how to navigate panic attacks that are triggered by sermons or church spaces. Your first practical step here is a trauma counselor because fight, flight, freeze, and fawn responses are a trauma issue. Second thing second, start small. My audience members who've asked me to help them process this have consistently said that community groups do not trigger them nearly so much as the formality and the social distance of a Sunday morning service. Sometimes it can be the size of the room or the paint on the walls or the personality or speaking style of the preacher or a song that your abuser loved to sing that is sung at your new church or the version of Bible that is used. Those things might come up in a small group, but in a small group, you've got your friends and your exit doors and it's often held in a home and so it just has a more relaxed feel. So even if triggering things do come up, you can lean into the relaxing resources that are right there a lot more quickly. Um, if this is a, an issue for you, if you want to participate well in church, but you're struggling because of trauma issues, because of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn responses, I do strongly recommend a trauma counselor. I can tell you a few things, but I am not a counselor, and my advice should not carry the same weight that a counselor's advice would carry. Um, Finally, while you're navigating these fear issues with a trauma counselor, remember that what ultimately casts out fear is not you doing the right things in the face of fear. Performance, even performance at trauma recovery, does not cast out fear. Love does. So find a few trustworthy people in your new church, let them in on your struggle, and let them love you through your fears. Ultimately, feeling loved by and safe with your church people is what can undo the trauma responses relating to church. I I have a lot more that I could say about this. Um, I, I really think, though, my heavier thoughts or my deeper thoughts such as my thoughts on 1 Corinthians 5, those heavier thoughts, I think, don't belong on air. I think they are fit for a book instead. Um, so I am going to close this episode here. I hope this has been helpful for, for you. I hope I've given you some practical guidance. Um, this was a heavy push towards getting into scripture, which can be triggering, and a heavy push towards getting into church, which can be triggering. And I want you to know that... Um, There is no shame if you are in a place where both of those are really, really difficult. We, we come to God with our brokenness. We don't, we don't heal ourselves and then show up. Um, and I hope you find that comforting. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And that is what draws us to him. And being drawn to him is what ultimately draws us to other people who are also drawn to him. Thank you so much for your time today. Please find the Hope Beyond Trauma Facebook page or Facebook group and begin to interact with other listeners and myself there. I try to pay attention to audience discussion in order to meet needs or to answer questions. So your interactions there can help to guide future episodes. I hope you leave today's episode encouraged, hopeful, and thinking about ways to love people well in your off-screen life.